The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Aaron Kling. This week in Eye on the Triangle, we'll be speaking with Alexis Roan, the creator of Truth Meets Story, a storytelling workshop devoted to allowing individuals to express feelings of guilt and shame, recontextualizing their circumstances as a story to share with others. It's Eye on the Triangle, folks. Let's get right to it. I'm Aaron Kling with 88.1 WKNC, Eye on the Triangle, and I'm currently speaking with Alexis Roan. Hello, Miss Roan. Welcome to Eye on the Triangle. Now, you are the founder of Truth Meets Story, aren't you? I'm the founder of Truth Meets Story, a storytelling project, expanding empathy one story at a time. I've been traveling the country promoting the power of story and training folks and curating storytelling night of live storytelling. So, yes, yes, I'm excited. So I'll be a new resident here in Raleigh. Now, you're originally from the West Coast. What brought you to this side of the shores? Well, actually, I'm originally from Houston, Texas, but I did move here because, well, <laughs> I've always wanted to live on the East Coast, but I didn't want to pay East Coast overhead. And so I found Raleigh to be the absolute perfect, perfect spot it's this really good mix of urban sophistication, but with a very homey, accessible feel. So, yes, I'm loving my new life here. So, Ms. Roan, you are currently working on Truth Meets Story, as we were talking about earlier. What exactly does that mean to you? Where'd you get the idea for all this? So, Truth Meets Story is actually based on a fable called The Naked Truth, and basically it's truth is wandering through a village, and whenever truth comes through the village, Everyone runs away. The mothers grab their children, cover their eyes. The old men scoff. The young men point and laugh. This happens to Truth every time Truth walks to the village. So Truth decides that's it. I'm done. I'm not coming back in faith. And so Truth goes to the forest and plans to do life there. But it is in the forest that Truth meets Story. And together, they return to the village. Clothed in story, now all of a sudden everyone are crowding around and they want to listen. Well, why now? Because no one likes a naked truth. And so I have found that truth to be, I found story to be the most palatable way to tell a truth that's not divisive, that's not vitriolic. It's just a story and it is the truth according to the gifts of my insight and putting it in story form just makes it easier to digest to remember, and to really cut through all of the them versus us kind of vitriol that we see a lot of times. And it's just us. It's a story. We can hear it much better. To narrow in on this, when you say the truth that needs to be clothed in story, what are you referring to? So I'm saying that there is no them. It is all of us. 
there is just us. And story makes that case more than anything. We all have a story. We all have a thousand stories, actually. And the whole narrative of pitting anyone who is opposed to, like the two opposing teams, I guess, would be them versus us. And so with truth meets story, I'm saying there is no them versus us. It is simply all of us. And all of us have a particular way of experiencing our lives that we identify as the, quote, truth. So it's one way if we say this is the truth, but it's a whole different experience if we say this is my story. And so I am all about promoting the latter and training people on how to simply tell their story in a way that it will be received by a universal audience, that it will be received with the intention that you, that you set forth. Okay. Instead of duking it out in the, in the office, in the classroom, on the online forums, as it is also common today, where should we be going? Well, we should definitely be like one of the things that I have decided is to number one, uh, put down my dukes. <laughs> I'm going to take the gloves off. I'm going all glocks down, like no shots fired. But there is a way in which you hear where someone has been. You let them just tell their story, their experience. You cannot counter that. You can't say that didn't happen unless they're lying, you know, about their story. But their particular experience becomes a way of, of at least us hearing each other. And then whatever happens from there, once we hear each other, I cannot expect that it would be anything but good. But trying to just get us to hear each other means that we must all, you know, take off the gloves, put our glocks down, and just begin to share our story. Uh, what stories have you shared? Oh, gosh. So I love, <laughs> so I've been doing storytelling, gosh, since I left my job at Enron, North America. <laughs> I was employed there ever so briefly, and I, I had the good fortune to leave before everyone else was forced out. So I've been telling stories basically since 2000, and I've told them in um, an array of spaces. And what I find and what I teach in all of my storytelling workshops is there's no such thing as oversharing. There's no such thing as a story that is not worth sharing or it's not important or what have you. Every story, every experience we have is important. What we need to be mindful of are the audiences. So, for example, when I'm before a group of students, I love to tell a story about uh, growing up when I was 12 years old. I didn't look like I was 12. I didn't act like I was 12. I could easily pass for, you know, 15 or 16, which is why I had a 17-year-old boyfriend, uh, two of them actually. And so I began to tell them that whole story, everything that happened in the space of me being this 12-year-old who didn't look like I was 12, didn't act like I was 12. So when I am telling that story to a group of, to a group of young people, school age, like middle school, high school, when I'm telling that story to them, I want them to hear me say, number one, if you are 12, your boyfriend should not be 17. Number two, if you are 17, your girlfriend should not be 12. So the whole purpose of me telling that story in that space is to come away with those two takeaways. But when I'm telling that story to, say, a group of teachers or a group of mentors or anyone who works with girls who, like me, looked like I was older, what I am asking them to do is to excel in grace for them, to not judge them, to not speak harshly against them, 
to not go overboard in terms of even condemning uh, this behavior because the behavior is rooted in something. What I want them to do is to show them grace, to let them know how wonderful and how amazing they are as young women and uh, to help guide their decisions. But a lot of times you just end up really shocked that, oh, my God, a 12-year-old and a 17-year-old, like, you know, oh my, you know, Armageddon. And I'm saying, yes, that is bad. And there are ways that uh, adults need to handle that particular situation. So it's the same story uh, with the same sort of um, the same experience that I'm sharing. But my focus or the way I pivot uh, in the things that I highlight is because I want one group to not do that. <laughs> and I want the other group to say, hey, I will now uh, be sure that my language is tinged with love, with affirmation and not condemnation for this behavior. Every author, when they write, every, every creative, when they work on their material, they always have an audience in mind. Yes. What audience do you think of? So when I was first writing, so I came into the whole storytelling community by first creating um, fictional projects for reluctant reading teens and preteens. So I had a very specific audience, reluctant reading teens and preteens within an urban context. And I wanted to write stories that reflected their reality, but also while simultaneously pulling them into the reading family. And so I would write, you know, I write gateway fiction for electric reading teens and preteens. And so they end up, you know, they read one of my books cover to cover. Now, all of a sudden, they want to go and comb the library shelves for other interesting books. Like, what else is out there? And before you know it, I have now brought them into the reading family where they can no longer say, oh, I hate reading or books are boring. That is not the case. So I always begin with my audience in mind, recognizing that like the books that I write is not for every particular young adult audience, but for those who have a more developed context, I certainly want to be able to, to mirror back to them what their lived experiences currently look like and then to give them a sense of here's a better direction or, you know, not, not preaching, not didactic, but just sort of illuminating through the power of story. Saying, hey, this is a thing, like this happened, here's a way around that. So that's for that audience. Where um, I'm also an artistic theologian. I studied at Fuller Theological Seminary, obtaining my Master of Arts in Theology. I am trained as an artistic theologian so that now the art that I create can also go into faith-based spaces and again, not being didactic, but just using art, and my particular art is, the, uh, is, is story. And so using the power of story and the power of language to curate and to create experiences so that faith communities will be able to see their experiences reflected, a loving, faithful God and a people doing their best. Yes, I have four upcoming storytelling workshops, Truth Meets Stories. The mission is to expand empathy one story at a time. And our approach is two-pronged. It is coaching people how to tell true first-person stories and then curating live storytelling, uh, live nights of storytelling to bring the community out for us to hear each other in ways that story being the most palatable way to hear one another. And so I have four workshops coming up, September 28th through October 19th. The first one is guilt, shame, and storytelling. And the focus for guilt, shame, and storytelling is for people who realize that they have a story. It is a great story. It's an intense story, 
but they feel some sort of twinge of shame about where they've been or what they've done. And so in that workshop, my mission is to demonstrate the guilt in a society and to differentiate it from shame. So I'm saying guilt is a thing. Guilt is a healthy thing. Shame is not healthy. And so we're going to unpack what shame looks like, how to dismantle shame. And then the third part of the workshop is to coach people how to tell those stories that you're thinking, oh, my God, like this is an uncomfortable truth. But there is definitely an audience that's like, hey, I have heard all of the cute superhero, superheroine stories. I'm now hungry for some stuff that's deeper. You talked about truth and you talked about shame. Does this fit with the dynamic you described earlier, the idea of taking a truth and clothing it in story? Yes, and here's here's what I mean. When you tell the truth, you don't change it. The truth doesn't change, but you do package it in story just so that people can hear you. So that is the mission. It's not to act like it didn't happen, and it's not to it's not to even make it be something that it's not. It's to let the truth be what it is. You just clothe it in a way that people can hear it. And um, we talked about how there are some, when I have this one story about my 12-year-old self who had two 17-year-old boyfriends. So when I'm talking with a group of um, middle school and high school students, I'll tell that story with one aim. When I'm talking to adults who actually mentor or work with that population, I frame it differently. Like, hey, let let there be grace for them uh, in that space. Same story, uh, different audiences, and my focus on the way that I dress that truth, the story that I tell to dress that truth is just is intended to meet that audience. But again, I am I'm trained to do that. And what I want to do is to pull other people at the mic to say, hey, surely I'm not the only 12 year old who looked like she was, you know, 15 or 16 and got into some really crazy situations. So as where I have done the work with dismantling shame, I am now pulling other people in saying, hey, if this is you, then meet me at guilt, shame and storytelling so that I can help you no longer be shackled by shame. And not just that, then I'm going to help you craft a story around those particular situations. Guilt, shame, and storytelling is actually one of my most popular. And then the second is intro to storytelling, and that is one that, you know, it reaches sort of the masses, anyone who is interested in true first-person stories, and they don't quite know how to go about it. A lot of our school curriculums is about creative writing. Then we have journalism, which is about reporting the facts. Well, I'm taking a space in between the two. I'm bringing all of the narrative elements, uh, metaphors, similes, that sort of the literary elements of creative fiction, and then the facts that we find in journalism. And I'm saying, hey, that's what we're going to do in intro to storytelling. We're going to tell the story of who you are, where you've been, using all of these really funny, incredible, insightful details. And we're going to craft it. I'm going to show you how to craft it in a way that will reach a universal audience. So that's intro to storytelling. And then the third workshop is Wounded Healers, using storytelling as social support. And so for that workshop, that is specifically targeting people who work for social service organizations or work as um, justice advocates, and they are in need of creative outlets. So they can be so overcome, like the lived realities that are very hard. And so for that particular workshop, I work with that population to say, hey, here is a creative outlet for engaging this population that's not looking for facts and statistics, 
Yes, they want the resources, but there are some other things, particularly for those who understand the principles of trauma-informed care. Two of those 10 principles definitely dovetail with regards to storytelling, and that is um, basically demonstrating that you, you know, you are being that is you're healthy, you're strong, you are resilient. So storytelling plays into that. And so it's, again, a creative outlet for those that deal with that population. And things can be very, very, very difficult. But I think I found a niche for those that, that are like, how do I lighten this load? Come see me using uh, wounded healers, using storytelling as social support. And then for the, re- the, the remaining two workshops is just a repeat of guilt, shame, and storytelling and intro to storytelling. So we'll actually do those twice. And then the wounded healers once in this current iteration from September 28th through October 19th. And if they go to my website, alexisrone.com, all of the workshops and the descriptions are listed there. They can click links. They can click around. I even have some sample uh, storytelling uh, with me doing uh, snippets of storytelling in different live events that they can also get a taste for. Can we talk about shame for a moment? Can we talk about the, the concept of shame and how it impacts individuals and communities? Do you typically have the people who attend your workshops dissociate from experiences they've had, try to relate it to a different character they've created uh, fictitiously? That is a great, that's a great question, Aaron. And um, what I do is I create a safe space for you to be able to, number one, handle a naked truth. And then we spend time dismantling the shame associated with your truth. And then I'm helping you to, at the end, dress that truth in a story. So no, I don't promote disassociating. And I am trained as a minister. And again, artistic theologian. Um, I have a Master of Arts in Theology. And one of the pivotal courses that I took where the, the whole workshop, Guilt, Shame, and, and Storytelling, is rooted, or the Guilt, Shame part of it, is rooted in a workshop I took in, in seminary called, the, the class was called the theological and clinical exploration of guilt and shame. And in that class, I found it to be so powerful because it helped me to see the universal experience of all of us violating, you know, established norms, like doing things that are inviolate. So that's guilt. Some of us, we've done these things, and then we're like, because I've done these things, that means I am a horrible person. That is a lie. That is shame. That is the thing that I dismantle in the guilt, shame, and storytelling workshop. And by bringing it into uh, this very intimate space in which I first uh, model for the participants what it looks like to, uh, to no longer be shackled by shame, by telling a story where they're like, oh, my God, like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe that she's being so open about this. And then as I go around the room and I say, now tell me, how did you feel listening to me tell the story? You know, uh, you know, most of, a lot of people will start off like, wow, I was really impressed that you were not trying to couch it. You weren't trying to disassociate. You didn't create some magical character to help you deal with it. You just told us like it happened. But the person that I love, like I love when I'm, I'm going around and I'm, I'm asking, how did you feel as I was telling the story? I love it when I hear the person say, you know what? I thought I was the only one who had that experience. And at that point, and that's at the very beginning, I'm like, yep, this is going to land and we are going to be okay. But the other thing that I do, even in creating the safe space and letting them know that I am, I'm trained to handle 
um, to explore guilt, shame, and then to show you how to capture the storytelling. I'm not going to force you to a stage to tell this story just yet. I am simply your, I'm your genesis. I'm the beginning of this whole journey towards dismantling shame and telling stories in this space and in this way without having to, you know, throw in an, uh, a fictional intermediary, if you will. Um, that, ha- that definitely, that has its place. And, uh, and I love people who are doing that work. But I am very, very particular and I'm very specific when I tell audiences and when I promote the workshops, I'm like, hey, this is what we're doing. And and then because we have the security of other people who are trusting me and trusting this process, it ends up being again, it's one of my most one of my most popular workshops because I find that there are people who are tired of throwing in the intermediary. They're tired of, you know, having to cloak and to shroud the truth of where they've been. And they're just looking to find a safe space to be able to unload that. And in uh, the Guilt, Shame, and Storytelling Workshop, that is what I have intentionally created, a safe space for you to tell the truth about where you've been. I model it. And then at the end, once you begin to hear, oh, my God, I'm not the only person for whom this has happened, or once you begin to let tell people, like cause I, uh, at the end of it, there is a, a, a one-on-one sort of sharing. Uh, there's a, a sharing and a listening exercise that I do where you, I partner um, each one of the storytellers with the person in the workshop, and they, you know, they have to take turns sharing and listening. And it is really remarkable what happens when they get to uh, tell their story to someone that's not judging them. They're listening. They're ready to get some popcorn. They're like, oh, and then what happened? And then what happened? And so the thing that they have been so ashamed of becomes this like really interesting narrative where they're like, wow, that was real. That was powerful. Oh my goodness. I have this person that I work with and there's someone in my family. I did not know that these were the emotions that were attached to that experience. Would you call it catharsis? Oh, absolutely. Extremely cathartic. Oh, without a doubt. Yes, it's, it's, it's definitely cathartic. Um, and you're liberated in an organic way. So this is not me promising anything other than to say, hey, listen, your answers are already with you. You just have to be silent uh, to listen. Uh, you have to practice these strategies. Uh, come and see. And then you will, you too will be a, you know, a believer in this process, not just in what it feels like for you to share your story, but what it feels like for you to listen to other people's realities that are different from your own mm-hmm. and empathy that you have for, it just grows. But it's not a forced kind of a thing. It's it, it's organic, and that is the brilliance of stories. We all have one. We just need to get into a space where we're you know not ashamed of telling it, and we need to find spaces, um, you know, microphones, mics, stages where they can tell these stories. And so that is all of what Truth Meets Story is curating: storytelling, coaching opportunities, and storytelling uh, live events. I also have a question. It's a little more personal. What is the face of shame to you? What does that look like? Mm. You know, um, it is very different. Shame is just one of those one of those entities that will uh, take a different form for different people. But uh, across the attributes that we all share, any of us who have battled shame, is we attach a sense of lack of worthiness, whether I am unfit to lead, I'm unfit to serve, or I'm even unfit to live. To view oneself as a black hole in the community. 
Exactly. It is like, yes, do not be yourself. If anything, find a, you know, find a cover. That's why I'm very, very, very particular in telling people there are three questions that you will always answer before you began to tell your story. The first question is, who am I? The second is, who is my audience? And the third is, how do I want them to respond to what I'm about to share? So by answering those three questions, then you can pull from your limitless, you know, wealth of of lived experience, your limitless source of story. Thousands of hours of life. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was just thinking uh, today, Aaron, about uh, a situation that happened when I was, uh, I think I was in middle school, and I was just battling very, very big, low self-esteem issues. I was cloaked in shame. Now, a big part of that was because I was also very active in my church, and they were very quick to point out all of the things that you did that were wrong. And instead of me saying that, oh, these things are wrong, I'm like, oh, because I've done these things, and that makes me wrong as well. So I've got both the guilt and the shame. And so that began to materialize into these vertigo spells. And my mother took me to uh, a, a physician. So when I was, uh, I think I was 11, 11 or 12 years old when this was happening, I would literally just kind of, you know, my, my, my heart would begin to beat fast and I would get these sort of spinning spells and it would be like, I'm about to pass out. When this happened when I was at school, the nurse, of course, told me, you know, I had to tell my mother and they took me to the doctor. Well, apparently when the spell happened in the doctor's office, they had me go and wait in the lobby while the doctor and my mother spoke. And do you know what the doctor told my mother? What did they tell your mother? That I was faking. Now, my mother was livid, except in addition to telling them that I was faking, they also said, apparently, this is something that she's doing for attention. So my mother had to somehow figure out how to show grace to a child who is faking, allegedly, and who is also looking for some attention. Well, that's one situation. Like that, you know, that's that's the uh, the doctor that's basically casting the decision. But the other thing is that my mother is a single parent. She does not have extra resources and funds to bring her child to the doctor (laughs) to pay this fee, only for the doctor to say, hey, there's nothing going on here. And so what I remember in that car ride home was not that she was loving and affirming me. It was that she was very angry, but she was having to couch her anger. And so the most that she could do to show me grace was to just say nothing. Now, that didn't help. That did not help. So that was, you know, years ago. And so I just remember that situation. And so that's, a, you know, again, that, that is me pulling from all of these things that I had forgotten but they become very rich opportunities and we all are located and we're all products of our lived experiences. And so what I have done by creating truth meets story, uh, expanding empathy one story at a time is I am saying, Hey, listen, I know what it's like to have a problem with the naked truth. I know what it's like to find stories that will dress your naked truth and make it more palatable for people to hear. I also know what it's like, to just decide that your story is not important, it's not worth hearing, it's not worth telling. So in this project, I am dismantling all of that, and I'm saying, hey, number one, you are important, and so is your story. And I want to show you how to tell that story, how to craft that story, and then 
I want to build a whole uh, group of storytellers that I can pull from to actually host and curate live true first person uh, nights of storytelling. So that's the, that, that's the next phase in this whole process. Right now I'm training the storytellers. And now I'm, I'm, I'm looking to make the broader community aware of what is available and additional resources available. And I got to tell you, Raleigh is an amazing community. I am so in love with this city. Every morning when I do my sunrise hike, I'm like, oh, I cannot believe I am blessed to be here in this space at this time. And I also recognize that there are storytellers that were already in place long before I got here. And they're doing an amazing work. I am simply focused specifically on um, this, uh, this niche for, I'm saying stories aren't just for children. Children aren't the only people with story time. There is now a such thing as adult story time. And it doesn't have to look like what your children go through. I think that need to communicate, that, that need to share, never really leaves us no matter how old we get. It does not. It does not. And, and what I'm careful to do, Aaron, is to recognize that there are some people who are very comfortable with the mic. And then there are some who, are, who have such a low self-value that they're like, nobody wants to hear from me. My story is not that important. And it is that person that I actively work to say, not only are you important, but so is your story. And just FYI, your story does not belong to you. It belongs to all of us. You have the, the story or the tools or the experiences that are going to help all of us make sense of where we are and where we need to go. So I am very, very particular about creating spaces for everyone to have time at the mic, not just those who are comfortable with their stories and love to be on the mic because, you know, there's that group. So I'm not looking for, you know, exclusively for that group, although, you know, I, I, I love to hear their stories as well. But I am saying, hey, Listen, everyone has a story to tell. I want to show you how to tell that. I want to show you why your story is important. And then I'm going to put you on the mic. Of course, that's the next step. It's you understand what happened, you experience what happened, and then you express what happened. One final question uh, for I on the Triangle. And I know you already have a lot of these stories posted on your website, which people can go to. But could you share some of those stories here on air? Now, I uh, have a bachelor's of journalism degree with an emphasis in public relations uh, from the University of Texas. And when I graduated in 1992, there was, um, you know, not a lot of pro- professional opportunities, you know, in PR and certainly nothing that was going to sustain me. I'd have to be willing to be hungry for a bit. But I had an offer to work for an insurance company. And then they trained me uh, in human resources. And then from there, I was able to go and uh, into employee relations and and recruiting for um, organizations within the finance industry, uh, insurance industry, that sort of thing. So about seven years after I graduated, I had finally landed what I felt like was my white whale. If you lived in Houston, this was the organization that you needed to have on your resume, because if you had this organization on your resume, it meant that you could write your own ticket. So on January 5th, 2000, I finally got that opportunity and I walked into the hallowed halls of Enron, North America. Now, what was interesting about Enron is that they had so much money, allegedly, <laughs> that, they never, <laughs> that they never did anything small. Everything was extra. My new employee orientation was at a five-star resort around the corner from our corporate headquarters. And, you know, it is incredible where those funds wind up, isn't it? Oh, 
my goodness. And the, the lunch cafeteria, you know, it wasn't just a salad bar and a pizza bar. It was like three sous chefs that would take your special order. And even on the salad bar, it was like grilled vegetables. It was so high-end. They were so extra with everything. But what was interesting, um, I noticed this on the very first day that I walked into the space. Um, I enter the glass doors part. I come into the lobby. There's opulence everywhere. There's a crowd of people waiting to get on the elevator. And I'm waiting with that group. And uh, I'm excited to be a part of this organization. I get on the elevator. And as I'm headed to the 27th floor, of course, we have a lot of stops in between. But as the crowd thins, I can now see one of uh, a plaque that was actually plastered all over the, the lobby, but I only was able to focus in on it uh, on the, in the elevator. And it was a plaque with the, the four core values at Enron, of which two were ethics and integrity. Hmm. I get off the elevator on the 27th floor. I go into my office, and I am met by uh, a new colleague, and he stops me in the hallway, and he says, your name is Alexis, right? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you just come from XYZ investment firm, right? I was like, yeah. And he says, I'm going to test your value as a recruiter. And then he asked, did you bring over the employee directory from your investment firm? Mm -hmm. And I was taken aback by it. But what I said was, no, our employee directory was online. So that was like, you know, that was what I said. And so he then moved out of the way and let me you know, continue on into the office. But what I was thinking was, and that is theft. <laughs> that is illegal to take people's like that's proprietary information. Aaron, I turn the corner and immediately to my right is an open library of company directories that other recruiters had brought over from their previous employer. There was no lock and key. There was nothing. And any time a recruiter needed to fill a position, they just went in, you know, to that space and they could, you know, find you know, whoever, like they find the industry, they could find the candidate, all of that. Yes. What, what was their position, how long they'd been there, their email and their phone number. All they had to do was to go to the library and to dial up, hey, or, or dial one of the people up and say, hey, I have this opportunity at Enron. Would you, you know, would you mind sending me your resume? I'd like to just, you know, toss you in the pool of candidates. So it was standard practice. Now, that's what they were thinking was standard practice. But for me, all I could think was, ooh, ethics and integrity is what you say is your core value. So I could not tell you what was on the book. I could not tell you what was on balance sheets and that sort of thing. But I could tell you that if you say that your core values, two of which are ethics and integrity, and they're plastered all over the building, and the first day, this is what you do, all I need to know is to trust myself that, hey, I get that for others. They have a $1.5 million uh, retirement uh, package mostly of Enron stock, mm -hmm. and they're like, I'm going to ride this golden goose until I retire in a year or two. And unfortunately, Aaron, not only could they not get to that year or two, when they left, they lost everything, and they were given a $4,000 check and 30 minutes to clear out their desk. So although I was not a part of that group, I left ahead of them. I was grateful that my constitution says ethics and integrity there are more than 15 letters on a plaque. Thank you so much for coming in. This has been a wonderful interview. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate the opportunity. That was Alexis Roan. You can always take a look at her website. And would you mind name dropping that one more time? 
Yes, uh, it's Alexis Roan, A-L-E-X-U-S, Roan, R-H-O-N as in Nancy E, dot com, AlexisRoan.com. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1, Eye on the Triangle, and I'm signing off. That's all for tonight's show, everyone. Remember to find that someone to talk to about your experiences can really benefit your mental health. Someone somewhere out there is willing to offer you a helping hand. You just got to find them. Thank you here to our live audience who has tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right. If you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting applicants if you'd like to become with the Eye of the Triangle team. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our entry music for today's show was Safe Sacks by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 License. Stay tuned for your usual program of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now.